0: This is Bob Wagner, musician, writer, music historian, and radio show host, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues.
1: I read somewhere that you started piano at the age of five. Tell me about that. Is it your parents forcing you to play the piano, or is it something that you sought out yourself?
0: Um, it was probably more the former. I wouldn't say it was done under duress, but I enjoyed it. I didn't, I didn't not enjoy it. So it was there for a few years, but it, it was more of a thing that I wanted to do when it became guitar a little later on when I was 12. But I'm... How but did I'm, that transition happen? Um, it's funny. I have such a good memory, but I have no memory of that. <laughs> I remember stopping piano... I remember pretty much everything about learning the guitar, but I don't remember that little, middle period when when it was just, I don't want to do the piano anymore, and why might I want to learn another instrument? I and, and it's funny, I mean, do we block things out? Memory's a funny thing, but I have absolutely no recollection of that, but I definitely remember my first, second, third guitar lessons and what I learned, but why I did that, no idea.
1: Um, uh, am I correct to assume that your piano lessons had to do with, was based around
0: classical music? Yeah, I had a good piano teacher, Mr. Camilleri. He's still around. He's in his, I think, 80s in Hamilton. He was a great teacher in in the sense that he he got me very disciplined. What I did get was the learning to read music and and just being faithful to a piece of music and getting the technical chops to some degree down pat. Um, it, I didn't learn songwriting or any of that kind of stuff, but, uh, but it was just your, your classical training type thing. And five years of that was pretty useful. Did you love it or did you like it or did you hate it? I think it was none of those three things. I wouldn't say I hated it. I, I wasn't very, I wasn't overly interested in it, I guess, because I, I, it's not that I wasn't enjoying the stuff I was learning. It's that I was under the shadow of an older sibling who was doing far, far better than I was. And, and, and she's a brilliant piano player to this day and has largely made a career out of that. And so I was kind of in that shadow. And, and that's probably why I decided I wanted to do something else. And but how did you feel about music in general, just music? So many fond memories of it, but I wouldn't say was passionate about it. I don't think that became part of my vocabulary until I was about 13, 14. When I was, yeah, 13, I was in grade eight. I My music teacher was a very passionate guy. He, he gave us lectures on the Beatles and the Beach Boys and Elvis. And he was an Elvis is a live conspiracy theorist. <laughs> he was a wonderful guy. Um... But uh, but it was just his passion for the subjects that that was so alluring because I don't think I'd ever met anyone before that who was passionate about anything really, so observing that in him that kind of awakened something in me, and then from there, absolutely music became the number one thing, which basically it has been ever since. so he's largely the thank slash blame. <laughs>
1: Uh, when you picked up the guitar, what were you hoping... What kind of music were you following?
0: Um, well, I mean, at that time, I was into the stuff that was on the the playlist of, you know, Q107, Y108, um, or whatever it was called back then. 95.3, I think, was the Hamilton Rock Station, Y95. And so the things I really loved were the Beatles and Queen. I got into Led Zeppelin. I knew Max Webster. Um rush. I, I got to know all this stuff, um, yeah, Canadian, American and and British rock, but in my guitar lessons I wasn't going there initially. I had this Eastern European guy named Boris. I really hope this guy is still alive and I can run into him by accident to thank him, because I was learning um I was learning Spanish guitar and and I was learning almost Chet Atkins type guitar where you're multitasking, doing a melody and a bass line at the same time. And that's where the piano lessons came in handy because I could already read and I had a pretty decent musical vocabulary for your average 12 year old then. I learned to do you know, the melody and the bass line at once on on the guitar, which is, you know, in my first, second lessons. I mean, as a teacher myself, when I teach students, just you start really slowly. But But just having that background already and I got the mechanics of the guitar down pretty quickly. So within two, three months of playing guitar, I was already playing some kind of complicated Spanish and kind of not quite country, but just say learning a Bach piece, but doing it the way that a country player would play it where you have the melody and bass at the same time. So that was was me when I was 12, 13 years old. So I wasn't doing rock and roll at all. That all kind of came later. How much later? Um, as soon as I found a an electric guitar that a friend could lend me, and and then I because we didn't have much money, the um my my dad's stereo became what I plugged into, and fortunately plugging into the auxiliary it was auxiliary or a mic input one or the other, but it had a little bit of gain structure to it for some reason from some old 1970s stereo but I was able to plug it into that and it, it was a little bit of a, of a dirty crunchy sound so it didn't sound very pleasant but it was enough that I could get my my lead chops kind of moving in, in the absence of an actual guitar amp because we just couldn't afford it and so you know only a bad artist blames their tools and you just you fiddle with what you have I guess.
1: I wonder what it did to the speakers. How's that? Like, I wonder if you blew the speakers. Oh,
0: <laughs> no, strangely enough, I didn't. Because I, I, I knew that this was my only option. So I did not turn it up very loudly. And uh, so, no, those speakers lasted for years. Oh, that's good. So, no, I did not blow them. Was, I didn't want to annoy anyone. I just wanted to learn how to play. And eventually, the, uh, a small 10 or 15 watt Fender guitar amp showed up. For Christmas, one year, and that was a big expense for my dad. He did not have money. And uh, so, and I was able to buy my own guitar, my own electric. But then, uh, this it was kind of a, a strat knockoff. It was a Samic and S A M I C K. And I used it later as trade in value along with another guitar that I bought off a friend for a hundred bucks, a similar kind of strat ish type thing. Put it on layaway, and I was able to get myself a Les Paul. And nice. and I still play with that. When I when I played with Classic Albums Live, and I did Rush 2112, I, I um the pickups I had replaced. My pal Mike salute replaced the pickups. But that was the guitar I used professionally. And it's still a fantastic guitar. I still enjoy playing it. And I had it since I was 15.
1: Okay, so on your website, you talk about wanting to pursue music professionally, but stopped that by the age of 19. <laughs> Tell me about, obviously that's not the case, but tell me about what that dream was back then and how you pursued it.
0: Well, I think the way I word that is I retired at the age of 19 in order to begin that pursuit because I, oh, you, you just do the thing that you think is required of you. You do the, the whole going to school and you know, I went to study software at Mohawk College and I barely made it through one year of that and it wasn't it wasn't happening. I was looking at the these people around me that were making games since they were nine, ten years old right. and I was just struggling through first year. I could appreciate the syntax and 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 the um, and the logic and you know the flow of logic and everything and uh, in you know doing loops and all that just completely understanding at least, um, on a basic level anyway, wouldn't say completely. But just, this wasn't for me. No, no, the the way that, that they were sleeping through first years, the way I was sleeping through music class in elementary school middle school and high school up to about grade 11 or so, because, you know, that's the thing that I, that I really wanted to do. But you didn't really know what you wanted to do because I was a very, very sheltered um, kid in a waspy neighborhood in Hamilton, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do all I knew was I knew I didn't want to be there and just somehow play music. That's all I really wanted to do was play music. And, and did that,
1: what did that mean in your mind?
0: Um, I didn't have anything specific. I just found whatever I could find. I, I played in a band every weekend at this little church on the South Mountain. And, uh, and church is a very loose usage of the term because it was basically run by an atheist academic under the auspices of the united church and but it gave me such a such an outlet to play once or twice a week with this band for about five or six maybe seven years what kind of music um it was it started as a kind of you know the whole christian rock thing but then i basically secularized the band <laughs> and and it and it made for a really really great thing to to just get my chops together and learn how to play for the song and not for me that took many many years because when you're young a lot of the time when you're playing and you're playing especially as a guitar player because it, it it's um you know it's a very phallic instrument it's presentation and you and you kind of want to show what you can do with it and over time of course you realize no you're not playing for you you're playing for the song you're playing for the band for the project for the show whatever it is and when you play every week and uh, you 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 start to you start to learn how to do it more for those things and not for yourself and very valuable stuff for when you get out there playing professionally because mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's definitely not about you it's about the larger project at hand
1: I, I just I don't know how
0: many people realize that at such a young age well I didn't <laughs> it's funny now I can say that but for sure in my early to mid20s is when I started, Figuring that out, maybe not even consciously, abstractly at best, I'd say. And but then you get into musical theater, and you're reading charts, and it's just yeah, you're not playing for you, you're playing for the thing. Which makes sense. So how did that musical theater gig happen? Well, my first musical theater gig, um, my first proper one, I would say, was Evita. I had to learn that book on I think maybe seventy-two days' notice. Uh, days no sorry days three days 72 hours notice and it's a very complicated book if you've ever heard that soundtrack Mm -hmm. you've seen that show there's a lot of funny time signatures and it's it's really interesting music
1: so how did that happen in in a way like was it a dream of yours to get into musical theater no
0: not really I mean I had this distant vision that I could get into that Queen musical which I eventually did the We Will Rock You show and um yeah, I was. I had a bunch of people around me saying it was a pipe dream and it wasn't going to happen, which, uh, of course, your instinct is great, get away from these people. <laughs> and but, but find, you've
1: been a pretty you know, decent reader in order to be able to even have the thought of pursuing um, going after a musician role in a musical theater.
0: Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm a great reader, but I'm a decent reader and so I had to work really really hard when I received those charts and I had those two or three days notice oh yeah I had to really stay up till 4 in the morning and and internalize as much of it as I could and so I remember showing up to the rehearsal the next day and the first act no problem because I painstakingly went through it all you know all evening into the early morning and then the second half I kind of sight read through to very mixed results and and, um, and and then the next rehearsal, then I got through both acts, and I did okay. So and, I mean, but you had you had the gig already? or Oh, yeah, I was in there. So just a friend just said, "Show up. He didn't even say what it was. He just <laughs> said, "Show up with a guitar at this place at noon on Monday, Sunday or Monday. And that was it. And I and I did, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. and because the book was, you know, about an inch thick. It was it was a lot lot of music in that book, and whatever was maybe maybe I'm exaggerating. It just I remember it being this giant thing that I could just plop on a table because it was a thick book, complicated music, and but I'm so glad that that was where it kind of started because it set a really high standard because a lot of stuff in just a lot of music even as a professional musician isn't very difficult to play. And, uh, but there's a certain sensibility required to play it, and you have to get a certain feel, a certain sound, whatever. But just in terms of the technical requirements to play this music, it was challenging. I mean, there, there was stuff in, you know, 5, eight, seven, eight time, I remember, um, some just really interesting key changes. And, but one of the simplest bits is this little melody that's in the second half, and I remember I missed it at the dress rehearsal. And, the, um, and her name was Jenny, the, uh, the MD, musical director. She was wonderful and Jenny Peace was her name. And uh, and I can even sing you the line right now, with a rit at the end. And I knew the line, but you're just nervous and clammy because you have all these things to think about. But this is the one exposed serious guitar line in the show. And I promised her I will not miss this line. And I didn't. I got it at every show, and that was fine. And she just kind of breathed a sigh of relief the first couple of shows when I got it. And she didn't have to look at me again after that. So... When she cued it in, just looking petrified, just oh, is he going to get this? And uh, but no, I got it. I messed up other little, tinier, um, not so in- the consequential things. But that was one of those just—you, you just are so exposed. You have to play this melody properly and just all kinds of songs have those iconic important lines mm-hmm. that you just have to play right you can you can get all these little things wrong you can hide in the bushes play quietly miss these little things but the things that stick out you have to get those parts right no questions asked
1: before this experience i I'm, i presume you might have been in a school band so you would have had some discipline in reading charts and yes. playing that like that
0: oh yeah high school uh, orchestra absolutely um, being a not morning person, can you imagine me at 14, 15, 16 years old, three days a week having to get to school for 7, 15 a.m. because orchestra rehearsal was before first period? I did this for four years. I don't know how, but I did it. And it was so valuable, absolutely, being in a large ensemble. And, uh, and I loved a lot of that music, absolutely. I mean, that kind of started in middle school, but the music got better, of course, in high school. And... Uh, Oh, yeah, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed playing anything from, from you know, Baroque classical romantic era, 20th, 20th century music to doing, you know, Elvis and disco medleys that they would arrange for orchestra, and I was the bass player, and so, because that's the closest thing to a guitar in high school band, so, yeah, very, very valuable so experience. That
1: experience of working in Aveda, um, did you think, okay, I want to start to focus on doing more musical theater stuff or where, where was your head at at that point
0: well I I gotta remember the actual timeline I in in the back of my head this this idea that the Will Rock You thing might happen was always there because I'd been in touch with Brian May a couple of years before then uh Queens Queens guitarist Brian May and and he told me that Toronto was going to be the next city they were going to do it in because initially I wanted to do a an audition in Las Vegas, and very, very long story short, that didn't happen, and I'm glad it didn't. Everything would have turned out so much differently had I done it that way, and I wouldn't have gotten the job anyway. So, but I but like that was the goal. That that was ultimately the goal. It wasn't a set goal because there's just so many things outside of your control as anything, I guess. But as soon as I found out that I was going to t- Toronto, then I just sent the emails I needed to send, and and I got and I got an audition. And that was probably within about a month, maybe two months, from the Avita gig finishing. So it was always kind of in my head there. Otherwise, I'm not sure what kind of musical theater I would have really uh, pursued, because it wasn't a very high-paying gig. It was, I think it was a high school production at, at a nice theater, though, that held about 500 people or whatever it was, six, 700 people in Hamilton, the DeFasco Center, whatever it's called now, on King William Street. But... Um, but how to do the professional theater thing. Well, that was my way in to do the Queen musical because I could at least do that. Okay, so the Queen musical,
1: because you're such a huge Brian May and Queen fan? Yeah. Or, more than anything else?
0: At that time, yeah. That was probably my number one.
1: And would you be, like, before this before the audition, would you know most of the songs and you could play it like Brian May?
0: Oh, yeah. I, I knew it inside out, but at the audition, it was very different because it was musical theater. And... In The rule of thumb in musical theatre, if, if there's rock instrumentation, the first thing to go is the guitar solo. And because uh, they only need so many of those. It's all about the, the the figures on stage, you know, the actors and the singers and the, the choreography, all that stuff, the ensemble, not so much the band. But, but that's been changing these last 20 or so years because now in a lot of musical theatre, the band's being incorporated into the show and they're on stage. Sometimes the band has lines and uh which is very lucrative for musicians because they're all union jobs and there's a there, there's a there's an onstage bonus that you get for uh, for being visible and not in a pit so um sorry did i answer that question back, yeah, yeah you did a bit? but I,
1: i'm curious as to what that audition process was like and and hmm. and did you put like what to you did this mean everything
0: well, yeah, it's funny. Hindsight's 2020, 20, as we all know, but I just knew how much was at stake. I just, I needed to do something with my life. I needed to get out of Hamilton, and and um, and this was just a massive, massive opportunity. So, so they sent me the charts, and there was there were two guitar parts, and we were doing five songs, and you had to learn both parts for uh, for the five songs so that was basically had to learn 10 things and I knew I I don't know how this was my instinct but I thought I do not want to be reading these parts I'll have the charts there as a backup sure but you know but Brian's gonna eventually be there I mean eventually it was the second audition and, and it was all okay no Brian's gonna be there and I'm not gonna have my nose buried in a book. And whoever's here for the first audition, I don't want my nose to be buried in the book. And that turned out to be probably the the smartest decision I made, either by accident or otherwise. Because, yeah, Brian sends a guy, and in this case, it was Elliot Ware was his name, and he'd been musical director of this show for years in London, and he later did Quadrophenia, worked with Pete Townsend, a wonderful guy, Elliot. and. And so he's basically Brian's, um, you know, eyes and ears right. until he shows up, and right away I connected with him. And you probably shouldn't say that because it doesn't sound very fair, <laughs> but uh, but it, but that's what it was. And then, so I got through that, and the the second audition, Tristan Ivakian and I.
1: Sorry, can I just go back to that yeah. first audition? Yeah. What yeah. is that like? Ah. Paint that picture for me.
0: I'm. I have absolutely no idea what's going on. I I was given very good advice from a friend who said, just go and keep your mouth shut and don't talk to the other players because there might be people who want to throw you off your game. And and because uh, it can be quite competitive. Right. And looking back on this now, yeah, you think, well, New York's a bigger city. LA's a bigger city. So therefore things will be more competitive there. No, there's more work to go around in those places, especially in New York. So, no, it's way less competitive. In Toronto, this is a city with 3 million people. And you can count the number of major theaters on one hand. So, there, there's a lot less work to go around. So, I'm not really aware of any of this. As far as I'm aware, I'm just going to do an audition to play Queen songs. Do you, and... so,
1: do you see anybody else auditioning? Oh, you...
0: yeah. It's in a band. Okay, so you're in a band with 8 people. And there are lots of other musicians around. I think there were different sittings and uh, seating yeah different seatings kind of kind of like a dinner and uh and it was eight of us in the band it was two guitar bass three keys drums and percussion i think that's eight yeah two guitar bass drums percussion three keys and one of the keys is musical director and and you're you're playing either guitar one or guitar two no reversal. And yeah, you're just walking into the audition and that's it. And they're just mixing and matching different players with one another to see who blends well with whom and they'll get the two guitar players to switch, or maybe get the two keyboarders to switch, and then they'll take that band, swap out the drummer, and try that one with all those guys, and then swap out this bass player, and then put that first drummer back in with this bass player, etc., etc. And then all those guys go, and a bunch of other guys come in, and, and try it that way. And so this went on for about six hours or so. I think we took one little break for 20 minutes. So that's kind of how that went, the mixing and matching thing. And... And then, by that first break, I realized I was getting along well with uh, with with Elliot, the guy that Brian sent, and he he actually he Brian doesn't play with a pick; he plays with an English sixpence. That's a big part of his sound because that serrated edge on that coin is um, kind of that attack on on every note. There's a bit of a as opposed to a from a pick, it's it's it sounds like it's subtle, but all these little ingredients make Brian sound what it is. And Elliot gave me a uh, one of Brian's sixpences that, he said uh, he he'd given him, and um, and he said something like, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it, but it was something like, well, not that I need to be giving this to you now because I'm, I'm I'll I'll be seeing you next week. So that was a nice little favor he did wow. for me. So then I knew okay, my chances are actually quite good.
1: So when you're doing this rehearsal or this audition. Mm-hmm. Are you and every
0: other guitar player sounding like Brian May? Um, No, we weren't. And that was the thing. It was Tristan Ivakian and I were the rock guys. And and the other two guys, they're just Toronto heavyweight, great guitar players, Tony Zorzi and Jim Tate. And they were kind of, they were more jazz guys as far as I know. And they're musical theater guys, extremely, um, extremely experienced doing the musical theater thing but but you get to the second audition and Brian doesn't know any of the history of who's on the scene mm-hmm. and what they do there Brian and Roger Roger Taylor's there too they want to they 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 want to select the guys that are going to most be faithful to their music and so I mean, no matter And any one of those those people in that room would have been great on the gig. I mean, we listened to it, it always sounded good. Mm-hmm. But but Brian and Roger know what they're listening for. They know what their music is and they, they, they just have their vision for how they want it to sound. But you don't want to sound exactly like them because again it's in a musical theater context, so there's all these things to balance and so but they, they, they just pick the guys that they think are gonna be the right guys for, for what their music requires and Tristan and I were the guitar players that they got and And so that' that's just that's just how it went. How
1: confident were you going into
0: this whole thing?
1: Um, of, of you as a player uh, mm. of you getting this gig?
0: I knew I knew what I was doing. I was not worried at all about what I was playing. I wasn't nervous going in. I mean, you're always a little nervous, but I wasn't a lot of the time nervousness is being worried about some variable that you don't know. And and I, that was not the case at all with this Because I knew my parts inside out with this music I really st- studied for two or three weeks these charts And I knew going in what I was doing So, but yeah, of course you're still nervous Because there's there's a lot going on in this room And you've been parachuted into this thing with these obviously very experienced musicians and you're the kid from Hamilton who nobody knows that's just walking in and you just have no idea these guys all know each other whatever and but it, it, I didn't really preoccupy myself with that just I kind of noticed it but I was so unilaterally focused on I, I need to be able to do this and I need to get this job. So to answer your question First time in, you don't really know how many other musicians you're up against because the audition started at nine. I was asked to come in at twelve or twelve thirty. It was twelve thirty, and and I'm there until four something, five something. So I there were players before me and there were players after me. So I didn't know. The second audition happens, and this one, the first one was at the Elgin Theater, and uh, the second one was at Cherry Beach. And there were the same four guitar players, and one other guy that got in to play one song. He'd somehow elbowed his way into the audition and and uh, missed his first major cue. So he only played one song, and he was kind of kindly asked to leave, I think, or something like that. Very nice guy, though. I even helped him with the gear. I remember that? But um, um, but it was basically the four of us. So so my mind, when I realized it was just two bands of eight. Sixteen guys and there's eight. I just realized, oh my goodness, I have a fifty-fifty chance of getting this gig because you you count the other musicians. And right, us four guitar players, and you know that was it. And 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 then in walk Brian and Roger, and it's my first time meeting Brian at that time. And uh, Brian was so nice. He uh, he wasn't feeling well that day. I later found out. And he brought his camera. He's a big photography guy, stereo photography, especially That's that Victorian photography stuff, 3D photography. But he brought his regular camera, and he took a photo of every musician. That's the first thing he did, because he just want uh, that That showed me what a thoughtful guy he was. He just wanted to remember he, all, every single person that he met, and just to document this for himself, because that, that made it matter to him. And that left such an impression on me of just his character that he wasn't just doing this and kind of going through the motions or whatever. It was just clearly important enough to him that he wanted to remember every single person when he was going to be making his decisions.
1: Wow. Okay, so tell me about the moment you found out.
0: Well, I... This is the first Max Webster connection to this little story now because I didn't have a cell phone at this time and I had to go home to Hamilton and... So yeah, I had to take a, a train, bus or a train back to Hamilton. But Kim Mitchell at this point was doing his his gig at a, a Q107. And he, was, he had been doing it for a couple of years at this point. And I imagine this, I went from auditioning for one guitar hero to another to tell him about it. And I wasn't in a rush to get home. I had to rush to the studio and I caught Kim in between segments. And he was the first person that I told all about it. And uh, So, so that this was, was really part mean. of the
1: interview that Q107 set up with you to say what you've been up to?
0: It wasn't so much an interview, no. It was just me voluntarily going to visit Kim because he was just so easily accessible okay. to, to go and just say hi. Because it was right at Young and Dundas. You could just see him through the glass and knock on the glass and say hi. And, and if he wasn't busy, he would always, every single time, he would say hi. And so, so I get home. And so after, after meeting with him, and he was really cool and encouraging about it because I'd met Kim so many times before then, too, for many years. And uh, so I get back to Hamilton, and there's a message on my voicemail from the contractor saying I got the gig. And, of course, the single most exciting moment of my life up to that point. It was absolutely, deliriously wonderful. And also on that voicemail was an invitation to come back to Toronto the next day because there's going to be a press conference, and Brian had invited the band to come while he does all his press stuff. And he just wanted everyone to be there because you know he wanted to then congratulate everyone who was in the band, and so Brian was great like that. So then then you find out which of these guys you auditioned with are on the gig, and and then after that I went back to the Q one o seven. Um, studio, which is right there because it was at the Cannon Theatre, now the Mervish Theatre, which is just spitting distance away, it's right. 30-second walk, and then I went back to the studio and said hi to Kim, and he said, how did it go, how did it go, and I said, Kim, I got the gig, and he was so happy for me. So Kim's been around in one way or another you know, for, for many years around this, long before I decided to do this book.
1: That's so cool. I guess at that point, does your life change?
0: Completely. I moved to Toronto. I moved from being in a basement, a friend's basement, actually the minister of that so-called church, that wonderful um, academic who was running a school in a, in a church, basically, um, doing biblical criticism, very serious stuff, actually, but very interesting stuff. I was staying in his basement, and I moved from that to living in a condo uh, on Young Street, 34th floor facing the, the toronto skyline so there's some incremental steps that i've missed in there clearly yeah. and professionally i later realized there were incremental steps i missed from playing small musical theater gigs and playing in small bands to basically playing the best gig as far as i was aware the the best gig for a a, a canadian rock guitar player in the country so so of course yeah your life changes. You you uh, you do a musical theater gig ultimately for a couple of years and you're you're making some pretty decent bread. It's a union A scale pay and and I'm just living in beautiful homes in Toronto and just living it up and really enjoying it and making various poor decisions <laughs> <laughs> as a 24 25 year old would. Well yeah. I in mean, no situation, yeah. And
1: you get money and but um, what was that like to just go from semi-professional gigs to a very professional gig like what was that learning curve like
0: um it was pretty swift and the lessons came fast and hard and because of course you make rookie mistakes and uh so yeah the lessons came very very fast and
1: i mean you also hmm. have to keep it fresh every
0: day oh yeah
1: which is I don't know how difficult that is, but I can I can see that that could be a challenge.
0: Yeah, it's some some of your very favorite music and you're playing it eight times a week for years. That's what musical theater or any kind of theater is like. And just yeah, keeping it fresh for yourself though it's very hard. And so but you you find a way through it. In some days you're just into it more than you're into it other days, but but you get to a mindset where it's just no no no, people are paying so much money to be to be experiencing this once and for them the majority of those people out there they're experiencing this once and you want to play this for them as if it's you know it is their one and only time so try to get in the mindset of playing it as if it's your one and only time because that's what it is for them so give them that they're they're paying a lot of money to be there just yeah you don't want them to feel like anyone that is entertaining them is phoning it in, or bringing their personal problems to the theater, or to the stage, and because that's the whole point of what we do, that that came to me very quickly, realizing just, you know, people, they, they leave their problems behind to come to a concert, or to a, a show, whatever it may be, um, consuming whatever they're consuming, however they're consuming it, and they want to be... Perhaps they want something thought-provoking, but overwhelmingly, people want something that's entertaining, so they're not having to do that, and they want it to be absolutely amazing, and you you need to give it, and you you have your off nights, everybody does, and anyone's lying if they say they, they don't, but, um, but that, that becomes your goal, it's just they're coming once, so give them the absolute best show that you can. What does this do to you as a musician? Um, well, your discipline in that sense improves, but there's a thing called show chops where you're so good at that one thing and that you don't really do much else. And so, and that took a long time to actually realize that I wasn't doing really much else musically. Well, you don't have time either. Yes, you do. You have time during the day. I mean, you, you don't have matinees every day. The matinees were Wednesday and Sunday when yeah when say i had 4 days of most weeks that weren't that weren't show days and so you could be doing other things and but but you know you're making great money and you just have well other priorities in life and you're you're playing plenty you're playing two one or two shows a day most days mondays are dark eight shows a week and yeah i just i was there was definitely part of me that was coasting and years later, when I did this show again, I did a U.S. tour with a whole different company, and some of the same familiar faces that were in the Toronto production, but mostly new faces behind the scenes and on stage. And we did it much, much better that time. We we had decided we we're gonna we we're gonna travel um, on Mondays, was traveling day, and we we're gonna book an open mic in the, the the new city on the Monday night, and one of us would book it, and we would just. Do the whatever that we would be doing that wasn't our show. You had to keep yourself sane and do something else. So the one guy, you know, Tristan, was writing an album, and I was doing, uh, I was developing my solo acoustic show. It turned out by accident, um, but that's what I was doing just to do something else. I was, I, I that's when I got comfortable behind a mic, talking to people between songs and doing my little storytelling and telling my jokes. And, uh, and but they're just developing a solo acoustic repertoire and that was one of the best decisions I ever made was when you have a full-time gig like that you have to have something else going on to to keep you fresh and interested and uh, and curious about something else I that's the mistake that I made the first time was having only that thing being the thing
1: although I can I can understand why that would have happened So when the show ended the first time, what happened
0: to you um, I I played in another band and I did teaching, but the income wasn't coming, and I'd never worked harder than I did in that period, and uh, and of course I couldn't afford to live in Toronto anymore, so I went back to Hamilton, live with my best friend for three years in a wonderful apartment, and those those were really really good years, and uh, and and just kind of started over from scratch, playing in different bands, I got into classic albums live, and. And then a new version of Wheel of Rock You was, was uh, brought to my attention. And I went to New York, auditioned for that one, got that gig. And and that kind of began the next epoch of my life where I just I, I, I did that show in so much of a better way and a healthy way. I did a lot of growing up in, in that kind of intermediary period between those two versions of that show. And can you just give me an example of what that means? Um. Well, because I, I, I kind of alluded to, I skipped a lot of steps from from what I was doing before I was 24 and you know, playing smaller musical theater, playing in small bands and then playing a massive, massive musical theater gig and those intermediate steps, playing in kind of, Slightly bigger bands, playing in bars, playing outdoor festivals, playing corporate gigs, playing in casinos. Those are the kind of things I should have perhaps done before doing a major, major musical theater gig. Right. Because it's not just the musical stuff. It's the, it's the business side of things. It's you know learning how to be a proper self-employed person, not just doing your books, um, which is, of course, a big part of it too. Um, yeah, just, just running yourself as a business, as it were. Um, but just being responsible for yourself and and when you're in bands like that, you, you start taking care of making phone calls with agents and, and and whoever the promoter of the gig is and sorting out things with them or doing your accommodations for the gig or rentals for the gig and in booking your transportation to get to the gig and all of these things, that kind of responsibility, just that was a big learning curve and... To uh, to play in bands like that and take on leadership roles like that, it makes you a more well-rounded person. And of course, these guys you're playing with when you when you play serious professional gigs, of course, they've done all those kinds of things too. A lot of those players, anyway, probably most of them. So, so the second time around that I get the wheel of rock you gig and I'm playing in musical theater and. The, it's it's just you're you're a more well-rounded person because you've just done a way wider variety of shows and bands and different different things that you've done.
1: Okay, so one of the things you mentioned the classic albums live. I presume that probably takes the same kind of discipline as your musical theater gig. Yeah, it's and very that similar. That would have been a great training ground for auditioning for
0: that. Role. Yeah, you're right. So it, it's a wonder I managed to pass. In the audition the first time around because yeah a lot of those, those intermediate steps hadn't been taken so but because I'd done that then doing the classic albums live thing I wouldn't even say that was a step backwards that wouldn't be fair to that because there's some serious musicians who are mm-hmm, part of for that sure and uh, so I
1: meant more like the musical <clears throat> discipline you have to have yeah. in order to present is similar between the musical theater oh and- yeah
0: oh yeah because I mean you're learning to play these records note for note and so, I mean, the first one I did was Led Zeppelin four And so there's three guitarists. Da- right. Damien, um, I'm going to say his last name wrong, but a wonderful guy named uh, Damien. Arochium, um, I think was his name. Um, Damien, don't send me angry hate mail. I got your name wrong. And Des Leahy on guitar. And it was the three of us. And Because uh, a lot of those Jimmy Page parts were layered on, on those records. And you needed three guys. Absolutely. And it was it was a great band, seven eight piece band. Chris Henry on drums, Lindsay Clark on keys, um, but also me on keys. I tripled. I, I doubled as a keyboardist on the No Quarter in the second half, and I played mandolin on the album for Battle Evermore and Going to California. And so that's kind of what got me in. Just oh, you can play three instruments, fabulous. And so that was that was a quick trip yeah, because. Uh, there was only two rehearsals and then boom, we're playing a theater in Ottawa and it's just, Oh my God, are you kidding me? Two rehearsals. And yeah, so, so that the gig felt like a dress rehearsal and then we should have played six gigs or 10 gigs toured it, but it was only just the one gig. So that's, that's, that's uh, that's unfinished business in my life. I would love to play Led Zeppelin in public with a band, even just a couple times. And, uh, but it was still a great gig. And, and, uh, and Phil Nero was on, vocals for that you know the wow. uh, the late Phil Nero yeah yeah um so that was a really really great band and Mark Yonetta was on bass I think that's everyone. that was a really really good band
1: what's your improvisational skills like
0: decent but not great because I'm a more structured player this is why I've played in musical theater and classic albums live and 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 um and played in tribute bands and stuff like that I love doing that stuff um, but I'm not really a jazz player, especially. So I'm I'm a more of a structured player than a loosely free player. But 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 if you put me in the right situation, especially if you give me a guitar that I'm unfamiliar with, that's what's interesting. Give me a Telecaster, and and put me in an improvisational place, and uh, and of course I can I can improvise. And but but I'm not Pat Metheny. I'm I I don't have Who his mind. Really? Yeah, I know. But I, I don't have that kind of mind. And because that's just the thing, my, my kung fu in, my, in music has, has been getting inside the head of, of someone who's done something and try to be faithful to it. But you still put your little stamp on things as well. I don't want to mimic things exactly, um, depending on the situation. A lot of the time you have that freedom to kind of still be yourself and, and you want to be, depending on the situation. But that's my discipline. And that comes from the, the classical training, for sure, when I was a kid, was, um, but I just learned music to be a puzzle. And you read the music, and you try to achieve this thing, this is what it's supposed to sound like. And that's a very good skill to have. That can get you a lot of work. But but the part of me that wants to improvise more, or that could do that, yeah, I definitely haven't done enough of that. Uh, so I'm decent there, at it, but I'm not great at it. But it,
1: sound, it doesn't sound like you, I mean, you've done a lot of stuff, mm. right? And... Whether it be musical theater or tribute bands, I mean, you seem to have managed to keep yourself quite busy.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's leaner years than others, and there's and there's other years where you make half as much as a congressman and anything in between, and so yeah, I I definitely have done lots of different stuff, and but yeah, it would be nice to to be part of something where it's not nearly a structure and I'm kind of doing a band like that now which is great where we walk into these rehearsals I'm doing one tonight and we, we don't play the songs the same way twice and I'm really enjoying that just playing with these pieces and it's in pre-production for an album and it's never the same way twice and I'm really enjoying that being that kind of player that that just I I, I just search for things and and find little holes and try to be an ornamental, decorate music the way Frank Zappa would say you know music is here's a chunk of time now decorate it and this is I think the first time I'm really getting to play in a band like this and I'm really really enjoying it.
1: So the other thing that you have done is write and I don't know how long you've been writing for but one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you was about your Max Webster book Hmm. but I get the impression that writing has been a big part of your life for a while
0: Whether it it be not
1: a book, but just even your blog. The fact that you like to do concert reviews. You like to write about things, about music.
0: Ah, you did your homework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, My blog has been there for years. And it's funny, you can go look back at the earlier things I wrote and that you can absolutely see my writing chops kind of showing up over time with that. I began, of course, writing on internet forums, as many of us did, you know, getting the internet in the early or late mid to late 90s rather and so yeah I mean there, there were there were internet forums music forums of course mm-hmm. for, for my favorite bands that I would be a member of and I, I once looked back at some of that stuff I wrote when I was 18 years old 20 years old 22 years old and just being horrified at, at my writing but but, um, but it was so interesting to look back at some of that stuff because what I ended up realizing was I just learned to make make myself more concise, yet you're not losing any of what what makes you able to be understood. Uh, I forget who said this quote. Um, one of the, probably one of those ancient philosophers, his name is start with a Q, probably some Greek philosopher, who who said, Don't aim to make yourself understood. Make yourself impossible to be misunderstood. Hmm. And and that uh, since since getting that into my head that's really informed my writing and that absolutely you want to be concise and i'm kind of the same way as a musician now 20 years ago if i played in a band it's all wow look at look at me and how i can play and look i'm i'm such a good guitar player all that stuff you know you're young and you know you're phallically waving your guitar around but no, no, no 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 you play for the song no you write for the subject it's not about you you know, it's coming through you, but you, but the subject is what is important, and and you want to make sure that anyone who is reading this will not be misunderstanding you. And if they don't care, that's fine. Not everybody has to care about the subject. But if you write with that mentality to ensure that there's no one reading this that's going to misunderstand you, then I think that's when you're going to be on the right track.
1: I can't help but think that you you love writing. I do. That that it's a it's a discipline that you you work at, but. It, it, it's something that you enjoy really doing.
0: Yeah, of course, like anything. I mean, I always have enjoyed reading, I've enjoyed writing, but when I was much, much younger in school, I didn't find much to read that I enjoyed and I find much to write about that I enjoyed. And and you were just limited to what you were exposed to, and I was extremely, extremely limited and sheltered in what I what I had exposure to and access to. And it wasn't really until my 20s, I started to find more things that I'd be interested in. Late teens, certainly, but, uh, but for sure by my, my, my early 20s. And, and so yeah, I think that's always been true. I've, I, I, I mean, there's a there's, there's photo of me somewhere in this world. I don't know where this photo is, but I'm, I'm four years old in kindergarten, I'm the one kid who's sitting down reading a book. That's always been there. And all the kids were playing with toys and whatever, and just getting up to whatever nonsense they were getting up to, but I was the kid who was reading. And, uh, and then I stopped being that kid, and that's another story, but then I kind of came back around and became the kid that reads again, the older kid, you know, by, by later in high school, starting to read books again and started writing and, and whatever I wanted to do around that. But I didn't really have any ambitions to be a proper Writer until this idea for this book happened. I mean, I had websites for my favorite bands and their concert history, and I guess that makes you a writer, quote-unquote. But but the book idea showed up in, I'd say, 2019. Okay. And, and that's when I decided this thing I'm doing for the Max Webster thing, it wasn't going to become a documentary at that point. That was kind of a dead end then at that point. And I'm gonna decide I decided so was that I'm gonna to to Was that something you were pursuing initially? I, it was. And that's a whole other discussion as to why that didn't come to fruition. And but then I was all, okay, now I'm gonna write a book. And I've no idea if I had the chops to do this, but no one said I couldn't. And I'm I just I just I just saw it as a a duty that I had to do this because it's a massive band that so many thousands and thousands of people still love. And there's no documentary on this band, there's been no archival work done on this band, and there there's just there's no major book on this band. Martin Popoff did a paperback on Max and I'm so glad he did that. And that kind of began this renaissance of interest in Max Webster. And and I just thought, great, I just wanna fill in some blanks and I just wanna kind of take it a step further. I wanna have the travelogue with all the the concert dates and talk about the recording career, the creative process, and I found tapes of you know, all kinds of studio outtakes and live recordings and stuff, and just I, it became a fascinating education about just the process, the creative process of this band, and and just them, how they evolved as a band on stage and in the studio, and I started writing about it, and I was all just, no, I need to actually do this as a book, not as a thing that's just for my personal delight. And so I spent several years and I put all this together and I knocked on us on so, so many doors to to find the photos and find stuff in archives. And, and that, what
1: was that like? Was it I mean, it was a, an impossible task with people very
0: helpful. Yes, people were amazing. I I have this completely unrealistically high opinion of. Of the of people, I hate the way that sounds because I've been so lucky. People in most, um, I don't, you don't want to speak for everyone because you, your, your sample size is what it is. But just so many people go to work or they do projects and they're just they have so much. Um, they're just roadblock and and just people saying yes, people saying no, and just. I'd say at least 95% of the doors I knocked on opened, and people were so generous and kind and helpful. And were just there's, there's a small handful of photos and recordings that I know of that are out there that I haven't been able to get my hands on because people were so awesome and help me with it, with this project. I mean I got access to to archives, you know, the the invitation only thing where it's like you're a stamp collector and they give you the the, the tweezers and the gloves to handle the negatives and in and, and, and the magnifying glass and and you just look at these negatives and put them on a screen and, and just decide, okay, I gotta take these dozen and they'll give you those ones for free and, and they'll send you the scans. And so that kind of thing. And then I went through the library and found all the old microfiche. Before you could go to newspapers.com and it was digitized and you could search by keyword. No, no, no. Eight years ago when I started doing this, you had to go through the microfiche. You had to load in the microfilm to a microfilm reader and go through it manually. Okay, entertainment section is C3. Okay, scroll ahead to C3 and, and just go through it randomly um, manually, I should say, until you found the date, and maybe you'll find the concert review, or you'll find the 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 ads for other concert dates, whatever it was. And this was a very painstaking process. And this is where it's like you're doing a PhD thesis on a band, and you're just spending endless hours. I'm sure they were just bored of seeing my face at this library. I was showing up daily for months, going through all these old newspapers to find the concert dates. And But I have no regrets doing it that way because it was so much fun. you kidding me? Finding out how much the world has changed, how much the world hasn't changed. Going, going through the sports section for fun and finding an article from 1978 says Maple Leafs lose to the Islanders in overtime. It was wonderful. Nothing has changed. So I so enjoyed that part of it too. So I, I, I'm very curious
1: because you talked about this. You, you were not even born when the band broke up. Yeah, I was minus one years okay, old. So what was it... <laughs> And I, I've also seen you clip of playing Lily, mm. one of my favorite songs. Ah. Um, so you obviously have a connection to the band. But where does that connection come from? Or at what point did you think, I need to do this on this band?
0: It's always been one of my favorite bands. And I just, I love the band. And just to me, it was necessity just because no one had done this. There's a, there's a pink, there's tons of Pink Floyd books and Led Zeppelin books and just Beatles and all these great bands. And of course, you go outside of Ontario and you won't find a ton of people who really love Max Webster. You'll find some, but not high concentrations of them. Mm-hmm. But around here in Toronto, there are just thousands, probably tens of thousands of massive Max Webster fans who saw that band. I mean, they filled Maple Leaf Gardens three times in 18 months. I mean, you can count on one hand the number of artists that did that in that period. You play one maybe two nights but not three Mm -hmm. so that was a big band and uh so yeah i just thought people people love this band and this just needs to be done and it's funny you look back on it now and going you you spend this amount of time and most people won't do this even as music collectors there's tons of these guys um who will collect their favorite band they try to find every recording every radio broadcast every bootleg tape you know audience recordings whatever of their favorite band and they will listen to every one there's no shortage of people like that who really love an artist like that but when you do this as a musician what you do when you follow a band like that and you get into their heads night to night you listen to 100 200 300 recordings of a band that you love you start learning things about yourself as a musician because you start seeing their Trajectory, You see their evolution as musicians, as individuals, and as a collective. And so maybe there's a bit of a selfish motivator there, because, yeah, you do this because you're learning about yourself, too. That was a nice little unconscious uh, reward, I guess, from doing this kind of thing. But basically, on a more simple level, you're just archiving a band. And every major artist has someone who is officially or unofficially just archiving their history, finding all the photos and and everything that's been written about them, finding any radio broadcasts, finding just newspaper articles, everything you possibly can, recordings, just to document the history of a band. And this had not happened for Max Webster. And I just thought someone needs to do this. And I was doing that before I decided I wanted to write the book. Because oh. because you mentioned that Max Webster box set, right. uh, The Party. Yeah, I worked on that. And so this is long before I decided I wanted to, to write the book. That was in 2017. And I just thought, yeah, this needs to be done. And great, now they're doing a box set. Now they're coming to me because I did this website on their history. just This is all just part of one giant thing that I was doing.
1: Was there a point where you thought, oh, this might not happen? Or w- once you decided that this to happen, was it full steam
0: ahead? Um, for me, it was full steam ahead, but there were so many variables beyond your control. Mm-hmm. There are so many, th- th- there, are, there are few people I, and I don't care who this upsets when I say this, I dislike people so much who say I'm a self-made man. That is the biggest lie we have been told, that we think that we are self-made. Everything is collaborative. Mm-hmm. We got help and. Everything from when we were four years old and we were being driven to school on roads that we did not pave, in cars we did not build, powered by gasoline that we did not pump, by, you know, oil that was refined by someone who was kept awake by a cup of coffee with beans that he did not produce. Just everything we've had help, if you trace anything back far enough. And and for this project, just... um, There was I cannot tell you how much help I had. You can just read the acknowledgments pages in the back because it's multiple pages, plural, of people who helped me, hundreds of names of people who helped me in major and minor ways and everything in between. And just the process of finding a printer and getting it printed and having a customs broker get it shipped from England to here and to get it through customs and get it to a warehouse... And, and before that, just finding all these photographers with the photos of the band, all the connections made to get into archives and to get recordings and, and all these things to put together so you have your archival project with your final, your final statement of it, as it were, the book, and all this stuff on the business end to, to, to those mechanisms to make that thing physically exist in an affordable way to get those sent here on a ship and then you pay the taxes as it comes into the country and set up a book release event and get all these people to come. Oh, all no. these things, just any one of those major things doesn't happen and the project fails. So yeah, you're, you're, so to answer your question, were there any moments where it was harrowing and you, you thought it wouldn't happen? Yeah, that was called the year before the book release party every goddamn day. And just existential crisis after existential crisis, because there are so many things that need to, binary switches that have to switch on in your favor. People who have to be fighting in your corner, conspiring in your favor to make these things happen for you. Because if they don't happen, there is no book and there's no event and there's no bad members coming to the event telling you that they are grateful that you did this.
1: So now that you accomplished this and you have this physical book and the band members did show up to the book launch, what next? What does it, like, obviously it gives you confidence that you can do this. Yeah. And it's, it's years of work and you, you've finished it. Um, is there something else that will come out of this? Like, would you want to do another book? Or does it, does the confidence in you make you want to do many other things?
0: Uh, yes. you don't have to tell me about what it is but I mean
1: obviously it must be a great feeling to work on something for years and see the finished product
0: yeah it's 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 I mean it's absolutely one of the best feelings in the world no question to know that however it happened that it finally did happen and, and that all the time that was spent on this um that that came to fruition. Of course, that's wonderful. It's funny, the question that you asked is kinda of like when you go up to a twenty year twenty two year old who has just graduated university and they're stuck with all this student debt and they've accomplished this massive thing, the biggest thing they've ever done, and then somebody asked them, Okay what do you want to do with your degree? Oh God, they just, you know, they won't tell you this, but they just want to punch all those people in the head and tell them, can I not just please enjoy this thing I've achieved? But I don't feel, of course, that strongly about it. But th- there still is a bit of that, of the whole, well, no, I'm just kind of, I mean, that was back in June, the book came out. And, you know, I've, I've had my period of enjoying it and kind of basking in that a little bit. But I'm definitely not in a rush to do the next thing. But absolutely, you're right. It gives you the confidence to to just because you know that okay this is of course going to give you a bit of i guess street cred mm-hmm. and uh because you're able to do this and so yeah people listen to you and look at you in, in a different way once you finish something i've really noticed this and uh it's that that's, that's been really gratifying too actually it's just just the way that people really listen to you carefully And they want to know these things of how this happened, and people coming to you for advice on how to do similar projects. And so, yeah, so of course it um, it kind of gives you a kind of a second wind, second lease on life, as it were. And of course it makes you want to do other things. And no, I haven't specifically decided anything I want to do, but... But absolutely, of course, there's something I'm, I'm, I'm going to want to do. I don't think it'll be another bio on a band. But if somebody wants to commission me to do it, of course, I'd, I'd be open to that. But, uh, but I never want to repeat myself. I never want to go back and do the same thing again. And I don't know if I would ever do a book that I enjoyed as much as this one. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But whatever it's going to be, um, of course, I'm going to do something else. And I've got a dozen ideas of things I want to do. And if I finish one or two of them, I'll be thrilled. But I'm in no huge rush to, to do it yet.
1: So the other thing you do, and the reason why this interview has taken a little longer than it, it might have been, was because you also work on cruise ships. Yeah. And so, you, and, and so I think what you mentioned before about developing a solo career in the second run of We Will Rock You and starting to work on your solo material. Yeah. Um, I presume that this is
0: part of that. Yeah. And, and then tell me about how that came about. Um, well, the drummer from the Wheel Rock You tour I did in the States and and Canada and Mexico, but mostly a U.S. tour. Um, Danny Young, wonderful guy. He's uh, he's in Chicago now, I think, and he he had some history working on ships. And after the tour had finished for Wheel Rock You, uh, Royal Caribbean got in touch with him because he'd worked with them, and they were buying they had bought the rights to the show and all the sets and the costumes and the wigs and the guitars and the amps and all the, the pedal gear the rest of the guitar equipment from that company and they were going to put on their version of the show and his job was at least partly to put together the band and so he said here's your guitar player so i uh, so i got the job he called me up and and he said and at this point you know you're 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 just back from two or three weeks from this tour, wondering what your next move is, and and you haven't found a home yet because you're just you know you just you you go away for a year and you put your stuff in the storage and so you know I just I you know you hadn't figured out what your what your next move was going to be, where you're going to live, what city you're going to live in, what country you're going to live in. This is the life of the nomad, and where you do because just 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 to pay to keep a place for a year while you're gone is in most cases ludicrous if it's just you. Um, not not, um, not if you're with people, whatever that's fine. But if it's just you, of course you're not going to keep a home and pay for it while you're gone. So, so I'm trying to sort this out, and I get this phone call from Danny saying, "Hey, how would you like to play in Europe for six months, doing Wheel Rock You and playing solo acoustic stuff?" And it's just, "Oh, this is fabulous," because yeah, I'll do the show, sure. And uh, but this is this thing I've been developing over the last six months or so, and I've got a repertoire and and not a large one but enough so I booked a solo show for myself and about a hundred something people came it was wonderful and and I feel like I played terribly and my jokes were written out on like it's like having crib notes and just I was so nervous because I had so many things to worry about I had a crew front of house guy guitar tech And it was streamed for people because I'd now met people all over the place and I wanted them to see this show as well. So a friend was streaming that. And so I had a team of four or five, maybe six people, a runner for sure, who brought me my dinner and whatever else because I had so many hats to wear. And that was the first major event I did like that where I was coordinating everything and at least much of it. No, pretty much everything. (laughs) And and, uh, so I didn't play very well, but... Because I just I you have to get better at that, but but everybody in the room was still on your side and and uh, and it, I, I remember uh, I remember the first thing I said after the first song because Nickelback was playing in in Hamilton that night and I remember my first thing I said was thank you for not coming to see Nickelback tonight <laughs> and uh, yeah and that just really set the tone for what kind of night it was going to be it was it was a really wonderful night and and then of course you know your chops and your Sensibilities improve over time because I was so nervous playing a proper solo show for the first time. But it was a it was a kind of a to get the hang of it before I do a ship gig and it turned out yeah I was doing five six nights a week on a ship and developing my repertoire, asking the audience for requests so they could tell me their ideas of what they want a solo acoustic guy to play. And I wasn't doing American Pie and Piano Man and Brown Eyed Girl and stuff like that. Just mean people kind of asked for that stuff, but people were asking for stuff off Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and people wanted to hear Yes Roundabout because it was English guests we were going around Europe around you know the Mediterranean right. and to the Canary Islands and stuff and so there was at least as much of that kind of stuff being requested you know can you play the early Genesis the early Peter Green Fleetwood Mac and it's just oh really this is what people want to hear cool this is fabulous so this really really worked out well and I was developing this repertoire and then I you know I remember just getting the request of, you know, can you do Time by Floyd? And can you do Money and Us and Them and Brain Damage? And, and then I realized, oh my God, I, I just had to learn a couple more of these pieces and I can learn the entire album. And, and then I just became that guy that does full albums. And, and it's, it's just, you know, not a lot of people do this stuff, I guess. I don't know if I've ever found anyone who does it kind of this particular way where I just use a looper pedal and I layer the parts. And if I'm lucky, the way I did on my last ship gig, I did a month in Alaska, there was a piano next to me, so I'd you know, loop the guitar parts and play piano parts on top of it. So, so, and just come up with these larger arrangements of all of this stuff, and, and just people really, really seem to like this. So I've been doing this on and off now for about eight years. And I play my, my own stuff too. People will inevitably get curious. Hey, have you been writing your own stuff? And well, best I do. And then you go into radio voice. And here is my album sitting right over here. And and you sell your albums. And so I have my LPs and my CDs. And so I play that stuff on ships too. Which is insane when you think about it. So you picture a cruise ship entertainer. He's wearing a suit and playing either classical or jazz or really top 40 stuff to his or her demographic and just no I don't do that and and of course I, what I do isn't for everybody but for the people who get it just it really really works out pretty well every time So that's been a nice little fortunate thing that's happened completely by accident like most things in my life
1: <laughs> but as I said before it's it started with wanting to be a musician and somehow you've made it work well you kind
0: of just create jobs for yourself and, uh, and just by accident I didn't consciously think of how am I going to create jobs for myself it's just kind of the way it happened Yeah. and I've managed to turn my two favorite bands into careers I did the queen thing in many different ways in a lot of different bands and scenarios and, and a little bit of passive income and so it can it buys me a bit of time to think about what the next thing is and now i can just sleep well at night knowing that just just people people have really enjoyed this thing you should read some of the feedback i get back from people I'm sure. it's just cuz people deeply love this band yeah. and 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 a big part of music archiving is is finding things that have been lost and it connects people back to i guess A simpler time in their lives when music was so central to their lives and for a lot of them it still is but really it was at that time and and it brings them back to that time and and it brings back all kinds of wonderful memories and that's been this nice little uh, kind of accidental benefit from doing all this stuff is that it it um, it just helps people just remember these 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 wonderful times in their life through music that they love
1: well said um, Bob, thank you so much for doing this. That the work you did in that book is really impressive, and and the things that you've accomplished is really impressive.
0: Well, Margo, thanks for having me and just thanks. giving me an opportunity to talk about this stuff. I I rarely think about this stuff at this abstract kind of, you know, meta level here, and yeah, this was thoroughly enjoyable for me too. So thanks for having me. Well, oh, thank you. Thank you.